Well, hey, it's Jason here, and I'm one of the pastors from The Way Church. We are a new church with a home in the city of Vancouver. And our prayer is that God would use these sermons from our teaching team to help you see Jesus more clearly. And if you're not part of a church, we'd love to connect with you. The easiest way to do it is to visit our website and fill out our connect form at thewaychurch.ca. Let's jump in. At the time he came to see me, he was the CEO of a large, successful export-import business. He came because his wife felt that there might be a spiritual dimension to his physical sufferings. He had been experiencing frequent severe headaches and more troubling, paralysis in his limbs. And it was getting harder and harder to get out of bed in the morning. He had been met to many doctors, all of whom said the same thing. There's nothing constitutionally wrong with you. Then why the paralysis, he would ask? And all the doctors said the same thing. I do not know. So at the urging of his wife, he came to see me, a pastor. He was looking for spiritual help. We sat down in my office, and as he told me his story, the story told in the second chapter of the gospel according to Mark kept coming to my mind. So I opened my Bible, and I invited him to listen as I prayerfully read Mark 2, 1 through 12, which I invite you now to listen to. When Jesus had come back to Capernaum several days afterwards, it was heard that he was at home, at home that is in his hometown. Many were gathered together so that there was no longer room even near the door, and he was speaking the word to them. And they come bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. Being unable to get to Jesus because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had dug an opening, they let down the pallet on which the paralytic was lying. And Jesus, seeing their faith, says to the paralytic, My child, your sins are forgiven. But there were some of the scribes sitting there, reasoning in their hearts. Why does this man speak this way? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves, says to them, why are you reasoning about these things in your heart? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, arise, take up your pallet and walk. But in order that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, take up your pallet and go home. And he rose and immediately took up the pallet and went out of the sight of them all, so that they were all amazed and were glorifying God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. My child, your sins are forgiven. The great theologian reformer Martin Luther claimed, the kingdom of God is in that one little sentence. My child, your sins are forgiven. Will you pray with me? Spirit of the living God, we believe 
that you enabled Mark to do his homework and then to be able to write this story down for us accurately. And I pray now in your mercy and grace that you would cause these words to come alive in our experience as never before. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Only Jesus. Walk with me through the story again. It takes place in the town of Capernaum, or, or Capernaum is sometimes pronounced, located on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. Capernaum had become Jesus' hometown, his headquarters for his first years of public ministry. In fact, it was the place where he was most freely welcomed. Jesus is teaching in the house of a relatively wealthy man who had to be bursting with pride that he was the one given the privilege of hosting the new rabbi in town. The whole town is there. Well, not literally every single person, but representatives of every sector of life. The mayor is there. Members of the city council are there. Members of the board of realtors are there. Bankers and plumbers and lawyers and farmers, accountants, housewives, carpenters, they're all there. And so too the scribes, the doctors of the divine law, who have made their way from Jerusalem. The place is alive with expectation and tension. The crowd is hanging on every word Jesus speaks. They had heard about or experienced themselves the performative power of his word. Jesus' word not only informs, it performs. His word makes things happen. But no one had greater expectations than five men who came to the house. One of the five is being carried by the other four on a stretcher because one of them is unable to move his legs. Apparently, the five had heard about the amazing things that Jesus had been doing in the area around Galilee, healing sickness of all kinds, freeing people from demonic possession. And so the five come to this house, trusting that somehow Jesus might be able to help. Whose idea was it? Mark does not say so. The one who was suffering the paralysis, his four friends, or, or all five? When they come, they encounter a problem. Because of the size of the crowd, they could not get through the door to Jesus. So, up they go, onto the roof of the house with the paralyzed man on the stretcher. Houses in first century Israel, Palestine, were basically square boxes. There is usually alongside a ladder or a staircase to allow you to get up onto the roof. The roof itself was flat while slightly tilting to allow for rain runoff. And the wood was made by wooden beams laid from wall to wall, very tight together and tightly packed with dried twigs. And then mud was put over those twigs. And then if you were wealthy enough, you could put tile over the mud. The four friends of the paralyzed man are so convinced that Jesus can help that they start dismantling the roof. They love their friends so much that they dig a hole in this roof 
Uh, can you imagine what the owner of the house was feeling at that time? Hey, hey dudes, what are you doing? That's, that is an expensive roof. Jesus stops teaching. He may as well, since everyone now is looking up at that hole that's emerging in the ceiling. And all of a sudden, a one-by-two meter object is pushed through the hole, lowered by ropes, and lowered right in front of Jesus. Everyone can see that the object is a stretcher and that on the stretcher is a paralyzed man. What will Jesus do? What will he say? Seeing the faith of the four men, he then looks at the paralytic and says, my child, your sins are forgiven. What? <laughs> the doctors of the law, the protectors of God's reputation, are outraged. Why does this man speak like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? The four friends are, are stunned. They're baffled. What does that have to do with our friend's need? What does sin have to do with immobile legs? Now, why does Mark bother telling us this story? What does he want us to know? I think Mark wants us to make a number of life-changing discoveries. Five life-changing discoveries. And I'll give a name for each one of them. Church, faith, wisdom, authority, and grace. The church of Jesus, faith in Jesus, the wisdom of Jesus, the authority of Jesus, and the grace of Jesus. Let's walk through these discoveries one at a time. Discovery number one, the church. In this event, we discover the church. In the actions of the four friends on behalf of their paralytic friend, we have a picture of what being church is all about. It's all about getting people into the presence of Jesus. It's all about getting people to the feet of Jesus. Church is all about getting people to the place where Jesus can touch them. The church is a community of people centered in, revolving around, helping each other move toward Jesus. Are you in the church? You might be attending a gathering of the church. You might even be a formal member of church, but are you in the church? That is, do you have three or four or five friends who know you and who love you enough to do anything to get you to Jesus. This is why leaders of the church in our time emphasize so strongly small groups. We need friends. We need friends who will pick us up and carry us to the feet of Jesus. Discovery number two, faith. In this event, we discover the nature of faith. The four friends did not let any obstacle deter them. They act boldly and shamelessly. They don't care what other people think about them. They simply had to get to Jesus. That is faith. William Barclay calls the faith of the four friends faith that laughs at barriers. My friend Dale Bruner says, faith lives under one great compulsion, the determination to get into the presence of Jesus. 
Mark tells us this story. To awaken and then fuel living faith, robust faith. Faith does whatever it can do to get to the feet of Jesus. Discovery number three, wisdom. In this event, we discover the wisdom of Jesus Christ. We discover the compassionate wisdom of the great physician. Jesus sees through to the real issue, to the root of the problem. He sees through the physical paralysis to the deeper issue of sin. The root problem for this man is sin, says Jesus. Now, the question is, in what sense was sin this man's root problem? And here we need to think as carefully as we can because the sin-sickness nexus is very complex. It was assumed in the first century that sin and sickness were inextricably intertwined. You sin, you suffer. You're suffering, you must have sinned. A sickness or tragedy was thought to always be punishment or the direct result of a specific sin. You remember the story of Job in the Old Testament. Job lost all his animals, property, servants, and children. And one of Job's comforters says, remember now, whoever perished being innocent, or where were the upright destroyed? You sin, you suffer. You're suffering, you must have sinned. I remember that after our Russian son, whom we adopted from Moscow, fell off a 120-foot cliff and went into a coma for a month. I remember one day a member of the church coming by and asked me to go out to get some coffee, which I was relieved to do, to leave Alex's ICU room. He put his arms around me. He says, Daryl, we've been friends for a long time. You can confess to me the sin that caused your son to fall off the cliff. Some of Jesus' first followers apparently thought this way. One, of, they, one day, they meet a man who was blind from birth, and they say to Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he should be born blind? Jesus' answer, neither. Jesus rejects the simplistic view. Not all sickness or suffering is a tit-for-tat punishment for sin. Specific sufferings are not necessarily the direct result of specific sin. Yet, Jesus does affirm that all suffering is the natural consequence of generic human sin. That is, all suffering is finally due to humanity's rebellion against God, to humanity's attempt to live apart from God. In the book of Genesis, in chapter 3, we see the first humans tempted to take life into their own hands, tempted to live independently of God. God had warned them, this isn't going to work. God had told them that they and their world had been created in such a way that as they remained dependent on God, the world and they would be whole. They should not aspire to be their own Lord because if they did, the fabric of the created order would unravel. But the first humans would not listen. They bought into the lie that they could make it on their own. And as God said, their world fell apart. So, Although there may not be a one-to-one -one correspondence between a specific sin and specific sickness, all sickness is rooted in humanity's rebellion against God. Back to the house in Capernaum. 
In what sense was the paralyzed man in need of forgiveness? A number of possibilities have been proposed. Perhaps he had, in fact, done something which directly caused his paralysis. You know that modern medicine tells us that things like envy, bitterness, greed, jealousy, not honoring the Sabbath, take its toll on us physically. Or perhaps the man was living with unresolved guilt. The psalmist understood this, Psalm 32. When I kept silence about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. I'm sure you've experienced that. In his book, Guilt and Grace, the Swiss psychoanalyst Paul Tournier goes so far to argue that being unreconciled in a significant relationship with a parent or spouse or child lies at the root of much sickness. Maybe this is what Jesus saw going on inside the paralyzed man. Or perhaps the man was so steeped in this first century tit-for-tat view of things that he would not be able to hear Jesus speak of healing until he heard Jesus speak of forgiving. The man's sickness may not have been directly related to any specific sin, but because of his mindset, he would not be able to be free to embrace his healing until he first realized that the sin issue had been settled. Or perhaps Jesus is simply teaching the man and us that our greater need is forgiveness. Yes, the man wants to walk again, but what he needs more than anything else is to walk with God. You see then that Jesus cares for this paralytic more than his four friends do. The fact is, even if this man walks again, he will not be whole until the relationship with the living God is restored. Our greater need is not for bread or for clothing or for money or for housing or jobs. Our greater need is for the living relationship with the living God to be restored. I mean, what does it matter in the final analysis to be healthy and to have the good life if one is separated from the creator? So Jesus initially disappoints the expectations of the four friends and disturbs the theology of the scribes. Because as the wise, compassionate doctor, he goes to the heart of the matter. He speaks the deeper healing word, my child, your sins are forgiven. Thus, discovery number four, authority. In this event, we discover the authority of Jesus, his authority to forgive human sin. The religious leaders are scandalized blasphemy. They realize that Jesus is assuming the sole prerogative of the living God. Isaiah 43, 25, God says, I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and remembers your sin no more. Jesus looks at the paralyzed man and announces without any fanfare and without any appeal to a higher authority that from that moment on, all is well between the man and the living God. <laughs> I mean, who does he think he is? God? 
When we read the whole of the Gospel of Mark, we see Jesus exercising authority over sickness simply by speaking. He cleanses a man with leprosy and he heals a woman with a fever. We see Jesus exercising a power over evil simply by speaking. He sets people free from demonic possession. We see Jesus exercising his authority over the out-of-control forces of nature simply by speaking. He calms a storm on the Sea of Galilee. We see Jesus exercising authority over the great enemy simply by speaking. He rescues a little girl from the jaws of death. And in this story, we see Jesus exercising authority over a human being's relationship with the living, holy God. Jesus declares that from that moment on, the living God holds nothing against that man. Wow, simply by a word, Jesus restores the divine human relationship. On what basis is the man forgiven? That's the key question to ask. On what basis does Jesus pardon the paralytic? Does the man himself do anything to make it possible? Do the four friends do anything to make it possible? No. All they did was come. All they did was show up. <laughs> we need to grasp this. Jesus does not ask the man, have you kept the law? There's no interrogation. He does not even ask the man to try to keep the law. Jesus doesn't say to the man, my child, if you'll just improve your spirituality, then I might be able to help you. The man does nothing. The man says nothing. He's forgiven simply by the authoritative word from the mouth of Jesus of Nazareth. <laughs> Wonder of wonders. Only Jesus can do that. Let me paraphrase Jesus' word to this man a number of different ways. My child, the Holy One, the one whose presence can arouse a deep sense of conviction, holds nothing against you. My child, I know that your debts are many and that you can never pay up, but I tell you from this moment all on, your debts are all canceled. My child, the judge of the universe has already taken up your case and he has stamped on your file the decree, pardon in full. My child, I'll tell you, the slate has been wiped clean, and in place of your guilt and shame is the word accepted. Now, how can Jesus say this? That's what the religious leaders want to know. So, Jesus takes up the challenge. Which is easier, he asks. Which is easier? To say your sins are forgiven, or to say, take up your pallet and walk. The emphasis is on the word say, which is easier to say. It is easier to say your sins are forgiven. Why? Because there's no way to measure whether the words actually affected anything. But you can determine the effect of the words, take up your pallet and walk. Either the man does or he does not. Either Jesus' word performs or does not. So, Jesus says the more difficult thing to say to prove that when he says the apparently easier thing to say, it really happens. 
get up and walk, and the man does. The word of healing brought healing into being just as the word of forgiveness brings forgiveness into being. Now, although it is easier to say your sins are forgiven, it's not an easier thing to do. For the forgiving of sins costs Jesus everything. It cost him his life. The religious leaders ask, by what right can Jesus declare full amnesty? But the deeper question is, what about justice? The, the man cannot get off that freely. Something should be done about the man's sin, right? Something should be done about all sin. If we had been there that day in the house in Jesus' town and asked him that question, I think Jesus would have said to us, you are right. Something needs to be done about sin. And it will. It will be done. But not by this paralyzed man, not by his four friends, not by the scribes and Pharisees, not by the townspeople. It will be done by me. I will do the something that needs to be done about sin. And he did. It is finished, he cries from the cross. That's something that ought to be done about the paralytic sin and about the four friends sin and about the scribes and Pharisees sin and about the town people's sin and about my sin and your sin has been done. It's been done. And so Jesus can say, my child, your sins are forgiven which leads us to discovery number five, grace. In this event, we discover grace, <laughs> or more exactly, the mobilizing power of grace. The paralyzed man got up and walked. I, I have a hunch that he could have lifted his legs over the stretcher without Jesus saying, get up and walk. Jesus spoke the harder to say thing, get up and walk, to prove that he has the authority to speak the apparently easier thing, your sins are forgiven. But I have a hunch that he spoke the harder to, word say, the harder to say word to help the man live out the freedom of his pardon. Grace itself mobilizes. As I said, at the time he came to see me, he was the CEO of a large, successful export-import business. He was experiencing paralysis on so many levels, mental, emotional, physical, spiritual. He'd started drinking again, trying to deaden this multi-level pain. After reading Mark 2 with him, I said, well, maybe, he said, well, maybe that man could be forgiven, but not me. No, I said, you can be forgiven too, but you do not know what I have done, he responded. No, I do not, but I tell you that Jesus forgives you too, but you do not know how much I have sinned. Try me, I said. Tell me what you've done. It's, it's too much to tell. Okay, I said to him, then do this. Go away and write it all out. And then come back, and if you want, I will read it, and I will tell you whether it's too much for Jesus to forgive. Three days later, he came back. 
six pages of legal pages. On the pages, he had the names of every business partner he had cheated and the dollar amounts he'd stolen. On the pages, he had written the cities, the hotels, and the dates where he had used a prostitute. On the pages, he had written all the awful things he had thought and said about other people. And he asked me to read every line, all six pages. And so, and he wanted me to read that because he realized that, that he needed somebody to know what he had done. So with tears now straining down my, stripping down my eyes, I read every one of those lines. Oh, getting sick to my stomach, and especially being deeply disturbed by the kinds of ways he had treated these women. I read all six pages. And then I took the pages and I tore them, held them between the man, and I began ripping them into little pieces, all six pages. He cried and he cried and he cried and he cried. I put my arms around him and I cried and I cried and I cried. And then I said, Jesus says to you, your sins, which are many, are forgiven. He left that day a new man. He had a lot of work to do, paying back those whom he cheated, which he did, thousands of dollars. Confessing to his wife, who miraculously forgave him. He didn't know what to do about the prostitutes, but he at least decided that he would speak out against prostitution. The paralysis went away. And he never lost the wonder of being a forgiven human being. He died a few years ago. And just before passing to the other side, I got a phone call from his wife. She was sitting on the edge of his hospital bed, he barely able to speak. Daryl, she said, he wants to ask you a favor. I'll hold the phone up to him. His voice was hard to hear, but I could hear his request. It was, say it again. I knew what he meant. So I said, Jesus says to you, my child, your sins are forgiven. I say the same thing to you. Martin Luther was right. The kingdom of God is contained in that one little sentence. My child, your sins are forgiven.